Hey everyone, technically you're getting two days in history today because we're running two episodes from the History Vault. You'll also hear two hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and it's August 21st. The Haitian Revolution began on this day in 1791. Haiti at the time was the Caribbean colony of Saint-Domingue, which was held by France, and it made huge amounts of money for France through the sugar industry. The enslaved population who was working at those sugar plantations was the vast majority of the colony's population, This was true of a lot of places that were relying on chattel slavery to do their labor. Often, the enslaved workforce was vastly larger than the enslavers who were living there. Vast majority, in the case of Saint-Domingue, was about 30,000 white people, about 24,000 free people of color, and 450,000 enslaved Africans and people of African descent. The people who were enslaved on these sugar plantations were doing just grueling work in a punishing climate that was also prone to tropical diseases. In terms of enslaved people, the conditions were particularly horrifying. Then the French Revolution started. That affected the entire French empire, including France's colonies and other parts of the world. And as they heard about what was happening in the French Revolution, the free people of color in Saint-Domingue started demanding full citizenship rights. The free people of color definitely had a lot more rights than the enslaved people. Some of them also enslaved people themselves. They didn't have the same rights as the white population. Some, but definitely not all, of Saint-Domingue's white citizens were also thinking about making some kind of move for independence from France. So there was a lot going on. And a rebellion by the free people of color in 1790 was really quickly put down. Then, in August of 1791, the uprising started among the enslaved people, and it was really violent. The most well-known leaders of this uprising were Jean-Jacques Dessalines and François-Dominique Toussaint, who would later take the name Toussaint L'Ouverture. These two men were really good at organizing and at strategy, and by 1793, the enslaved people had taken over a portion of the colony. France was really on its way to defeat at this point in the colony, but it was also at war with Spain and Britain, and so this blossomed into an international conflict with other nations seeing the chance to possibly claim Saint-Domingue for their own, and with the enslaved people seeing opportunities to work with some of these other countries to fight back against France. Eventually, France gave the more affluent freemen of color full citizenship rights, basically because they were backed into a corner. And France abolished slavery in its colonies in 1794. This meant that the enslaved people who had been working with France's enemies then switched sides because those enemies had not yet abolished slavery. Eventually, Toussaint Louverture named himself governor general for life in 1801, although he did die in France in 1803 after being captured and imprisoned. All in all, this revolution went on from 1791 to 1804, and in the end, the colony gained independence from France, declared independence on January 1st of 1804, and was renamed Haiti. It became the first country to be founded by formerly enslaved people 
Although life in Haiti did continue to be really difficult since nearly its whole population had been enslaved for all of this time and it had no opportunity to build their own wealth. The legacy of slavery also continues to affect life and culture and the economy of Haiti all the way up until today. The effect of this revolution on the United States was also huge. As was the case before the uprising, the enslaved population of the American South in most places greatly outnumbered the enslaving white population. In a lot of places, people had already been really scared of slave uprisings. And the fact that this had happened in Haiti and it had been successful made people even more terrified. Simultaneously, there were others in the nation who were just ready to start trading with this newly independent nation. But the people who were terrified of this whole situation wound up becoming even more strict and harsh and draconian in how they treated their enslaved population in the hope of preventing this kind of thing from happening in the United States. You can learn more about all this in the January 27th, 2010 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class. And thanks to Tari Harrison for audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Tomorrow, tune in for a set of rules governing warfare. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was August 21st, 1911. An Italian thief named Vincenzo Perugia stole the Mona Lisa from the Louvre Museum in Paris. Perugia moved to Paris in 1908. In 1911, he worked at the Louvre as a handyman, fixing the glass in the displays. Months before he would steal the Mona Lisa, a French reporter stayed overnight at the Louvre in a sarcophagus to show how bad surveillance at the museum was. The Louvre did not have the best measures in place to protect the artwork from theft. For instance, many of the paintings were hanging and easy to take off of the wall. By many accounts, Perugia, no stranger to the personnel in the museum, entered the Louvre on the evening of Sunday, August 20th, 1911. Wearing the same white smock that the Louvre employees wore, he went to the gallery that held the Mona Lisa and hid in a closet until the museum closed. Then he took the Mona Lisa out of its frame and walked out with it under his smock on the 21st. But Perugia himself said that he entered the Louvre on the morning of Monday, August 21st, grabbed the Mona Lisa off the wall when nobody was in the gallery, and left with it under his smock. Either way, he took the painting back to his apartment. The theft went unnoticed for a whole day, since paintings were often removed for cleaning or for photos. But the day after the theft, security guards realized that the artwork was missing and reported the theft to the police. Police launched an investigation into the crime. The Mona Lisa's frame was found in a stairwell and the museum announced the theft to the public. The museum closed for a week. The press jumped on the story, which became international news over the next two years. Fans of the Mona Lisa and Louvre visitors expressed their frustration with the theft of the beloved artwork. 
Investigators questioned witnesses and stopped cars and pedestrians for searches, but they weren't turning up any leads. The newspaper Paris Journal was offering a reward for information about the theft, and a man named Joseph Jerry Perret went to its office with a small statue he claimed that he stole from the Louvre. He once worked for the poet Guillaume Apollinaire, who had once called for the Louvre to be burned down and had several small statues that were stolen from the Louvre. Pierret implicated Apollinaire in the Mona Lisa theft. But investigators did not think that Apollinaire committed the crime alone. So they went after Picasso too, who was a friend of Apollinaire's and had bought stolen statues from Pierret. But after their trial, Apollinaire and Picasso were let off the hook. The investigation went cold, though people continued to speculate on the painting's whereabouts. Some claimed they saw it in Brazil or Japan. Some said it was in the mansion of financier J.P. Morgan. But Perugia had been keeping the Mona Lisa hidden. He insisted that he just wanted to return it to Italy, where it rightfully belonged, as Napoleon had stolen it, though it was not plundered under Napoleon. Whether or not he was being truthful when he gave this justification for the theft has been up for debate. In 1913, he tried to sell the painting. Using the pseudonym Leonardo Vincenzo, he wrote to an art dealer in Florence named Alfredo Geri, saying he would bring the painting to Italy in exchange for 500,000 lira. Geri agreed and Perugia took the Mona Lisa to Italy. Jerry said the Uffizi Gallery would authenticate the painting. But instead of buying the painting, Jerry reported Perugia to the police. He was arrested on December 11th in his hotel. The Uffizi Gallery displayed the Mona Lisa for a couple weeks before it was returned to the Louvre in January of 1914. Perugia was convicted of theft in August of 1914 and sentenced to just over a year in prison, though he served less time than that. Art enthusiasts and critics showed renewed interest in the Mona Lisa after its return. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. We'd love it if you left us a comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at T-D-I-H-C podcast. Thanks for showing up. We'll meet here again tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.